1: Listening to Teal for Change on the Sharks Audio Network with your hosts Mo Fafana and Whitney Halleck.
2: Mo, we're back.
3: We are Episode
2: 2. We survived.
3: We did survive. How does it feel to officially have done our first podcast?
2: It was, it was really fun. Um, I, the Um. only thing, the only thing that I heard from my friends though, was they'd be like, who's this Mo guy? He sounds awesome. (laughs) Tell me more about him. And I realized, we probably we didn't really talk about ourselves that all that much.
3: We didn't, you know. I think being the first podcast, we really wanted to talk about, you know, what tiffa change was, and you know, give people uh, the background of, you know, why we started the podcast and just exactly the council that we're in. But we definitely need to let people know a little bit about ourselves and
2: yeah. So we, I mean, you know, we're dealing with things that are. We're dealing with things that are much bigger than ourselves. So I think it was only right to give uh, that first episode, concentrate on the on the issues that we care deeply about. You know, the reason why Teal for Change was started. Let's give the people what they want.
3: Yes, let's give the people <laughs> what they
2: want. Let's start with you, Mo. Okay,
3: I'm Rapid ready. Rapid fire questions. Are I'm you ready? ready? I okay. am ready. First memory of Sharks hockey. First memory, game four, 2016, Stanley Cup, round, conference finals, Sharks versus Blues. It was my first Sharks game ever, the first day of work. Um, I walked in, you know, it was like super, super excited to be, you know, first day of work meeting people. And then it was also a game day. And I walked in, I know anything about the Sharks other than grateful to be hired and, um, I walk into the arena and it was rocking. I didn't know what was going on, like what a penalty was and none of that stuff. But I just know that this was fun. I was high-fiving people that I've never met before and it was great. And I was hooked.
2: Nice. Nice. What a great memory. My first memory of Sharks hockey when I was a little kid, I think I was six years old and my parents took my brother and I to a a Lumberjacks game, Cleveland Lumberjacks. And uh, they let us pick out a souvenir. And when we went to the store, I found a, a... san jose sharks puck and i just thought that was the coolest logo my favorite color was teal and so i picked out a san jose sharks puck and i still have I it today it's it's on my desk at work
3: it's like a full circle moment huh
2: yeah um, all right next question are you ready favorite athlete of all time
3: my favorite athlete of all time have to be serena williams it's always tough because always is it's like it go between serena williams and kobe Bryant, but I give Serena Williams the edge because she was like, I guess the first athlete that I like started to to follow and just, I just fell in love with her tenacity and her her ambition. And, you know, when she's on the on the tennis court, she's a beast and everything that she stands for outside of the tennis court. So it, it's like a 1A, 1B, but in a slight edge to Serena Williams because she's, yeah. she's the greatest of all time and she won a Grand Slam pregnant. I mean, come on. Yeah, um, she so is incredible. With that, I just had to give it to Serena Williams. How about you?
2: Uh, well, if you go Serena Williams, I I also have a toss-up. Obviously, LeBron James, for all of the work he does off the court. I mean, even if I have kids, get married and have kids one day, I still think that the Cavs winning a championship will be the highlight of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm going to throw a curveball, and I'm going to go Peekaboo Street, 1998, gold medal in the Super G. She named herself. I have
3: herself. no idea who that is, but you have to tell me more. <laughs> <laughs>
2: She, Our parents were total hippies, and they were like, we're, we can't we can't name this little girl, and so they let her name herself, and she named herself Peekaboo.
3: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> My parents would never, but... <laughs> <laughs> Look
2: her right. up. She's fantastic. But how about favorite book to recommend?
3: My favorite book to recommend would have to be the Autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. It was one of those books that I read, I think, two years ago, and... Phenomenal I would recommend it to, to everyone to read he's his journey and seeing where he came from and where he ended up you know I guess close to his assassination it just the transformation he made as a as a human being was something inspiring so I would recommend his autobiography. How about
2: and you? As I told you before we taped, I have a long list. So I decided I would choose on the spot, but you and I both love to read. So this was a difficult question. I'm going to go Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Chamele, mm-hmm. I believe is how we say her last name. It was just a a, a, a really great book about girls and, and women kind of learning how to use anger or emotions and feelings in, in a different light and, and learning that... They, they aren't necessarily negative things. And it was just a, a really excellent book and I, I highly recommend it. Okay, now for some a, a fun, kind of fun question. What actor would play you in your biopic?
3: This is such a great question. And I thought about this, like I've been asked this question before and, you know, I was, I was going to say someone young, but I've always loved Idris Elba. You know, you and I know that we... Joking around sometimes I do accents and British accents is like one of my favorite things to do. So because of that, I'm going to go Idris Elba.
2: Of course. Of course. He's excellent. I absolutely love him. Good choice. I'm going to go Liza Minnelli.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great choice.
2: (laughs) I think like even today, she she could play me even today. She's fantastic. Okay, to round things out, Mo, how about what is a cause that is most important
3: to you? A cause that is important to me is education. Um, As you mentioned, you and I both, you know, love to read. And I think for me, being uh, an immigrant born in the Ivory Coast and moved here at the United States when I was 11 years old, I always looked at education as my way out. Knowledge was power, uh, is power to me, um, because it's something that no one can take away from you. Um, So it's been important to me to educate myself and also provide opportunities for others to educate themselves and, and, and resources so that's something that's in, and important to me and you know one day um, when I'm in my whatever age support I mean I mean even to this day they're just supporting foundations that you know give back to, to communities and educate you know kids um, that's something that I'm really passionate about so What about
2: you? What about me? I would say um, poverty and and homelessness. When I was in high school, I I was able to, um, I was interested in, and there there were opportunities provided to start visiting places and communities that were much different than where I was growing up. And I did a couple summer trips and, and spring breaks. Um, going to communities, and, and the first one was Camden, New Jersey, which is one of the poorest cities in America. And it was just, it was eye opening. We got to visit a few different nonprofits uh, serving the low income communities and and homeless communities, and just learning about how difficult it is to get out of poverty, and, and it's such a cycle. And, you know, systems are, are set up to keep you there. And, and it was just, like I said, eye-opening. Um, and in college, I did the same thing. I did a couple spring break trips. One, I went to a camp uh, for children that was specifically for children with AIDS, because they're not allowed to go to any other camps like other kids. I, I spent some time in Denver um, working with the homeless population there. And it's just something that I've always been very passionate about. So after college, I joined the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Uh, It's similar to the Peace Corps, but one year and mainly in the United States. And they have this just awful saying that we would always make fun of called ruined for life. But it's very true. I just always have this. I I have to stand up for people who have been marginalized or under-resourced and systemically oppressed. So, yeah,
3: deep stuff. Tell the listeners what's coming up because it's big. It is big. Not only do we have one guest... We have two guests. We're excited. We have um, Brock McGillis and Curtis Gabriel, who's actually with us here with the Sharks and Barracuda, and phenomenal. Like just watching from the outside and things that he's doing um, on social media and speaking out. Like I'm so so excited to be able to you know speak with him and also you know with Brock and hear their story and also like share their story with our listeners, um, and all the great things that they're doing in you know in the sport of hockey and in in the community.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners um, will know who Curtis Gabriel is, but um, I'm really excited for everyone to really get to know Brock as well. Um, So we'll be right back. Stay with us.
1: Welcome back to Teal for Change. Now here's Whitney and Mo.
2: Can you believe it? We have two guests. (laughs)
3: Excited. Like, episode two, and we have two guests. So then on episode three, we're going to have three guests.
2: (laughs) I mean, um, it just gets better and better. Who are our two guests?
3: So we have Brock McGillis here. Um, Brock McGillis is a former OHL and professional hockey player, having played professionally in both the United States and Europe. McGillis is the first male professional hockey player to openly come out as gay. Um, These days, you can find Brock working as a speaker and educator on inclusivity, mental health, self-empowerment and non-conformity.
2: Our second guest is Curtis Gabriel. Curtis is uh, the Sharks' imposing right wing. He joined the team this year after spending some time in New Jersey and Minnesota, and most recently with the Lehigh Valley Phantoms of the AHL. Curtis has made a name for himself as a passionate hockey player who does not back down always sticking up for his teammates, um, and the same goes for his work off the ice. He's passionate. um, He's a passionate defender of equity and equality, an ally in the LGBTQ plus community. Curtis, Brock, welcome. Thank you so much for joining the Teal for Change podcast.
1: Thank you so Thanks much for, for having us. us. Yeah,
0: yeah well, of course awesome. we're gonna,
1: of course we're gonna say the same thing, Brock. We gotta <laughs> differentiate so ourselves a little bit here.
0: I know we we sound like <laughs> stereotypical hockey guys right now.
2: <laughs> so first Puck, question: pucks did, in deep. <laughs> <laughs> how did you guys meet?
0: Yes, take it away, Brock.
1: This is it's gonna be funnier. <laughs> it's gonna be funnier from Brock's mouth. This story. <laughs>
0: All right, so <laughs> here we go. I saw. Mentions everywhere of this guy using pry tape in a hockey game, and I'm thinking, cool. I was like, well, no, but really, I thought, well, that's great. But I, I find a lot of things in our culture, especially dealing with social issues in the hockey culture, quite performative. So I was like, I want to find out what this guy's all about. Because he was getting, like, I, I felt, and he knows this, and, and we have a really good friendship now, so I can say this openly. Like, I felt like he was put on this pedestal. And he was, like, anointed a little bit as, as a hero, like a gay cult, you know, like hero, and then the hockey world was, like, showing him off as a trophy. And I was like, I tend to, like, want to delve deeper before I'm going to anoint somebody like this great. So we got on a call. I DM'd him. I said, "What you do is great. I'd love to chat." We got on a call, and um, I came away from that call <laughs> not sold.
2: <laughs>
0: I wasn't buying what this guy was selling. I'm like, oh, "So
3: God, okay, you to say that." <laughs>
2: Curtis, Curtis, wait, how did you come away from that call? Oh, God, the same thing. I was terrified.
0: I was <laughs> terrified. I
1: was like, holy frick, I put I put tape on my stick. I didn't realize it was this big of an issue. Like, how naive was I? And then all of a sudden, I got Brock, Captain Gay, America, Canada, whatever you want to call it, ringing me up, going, you know, delving deeper on me. And I'm just sitting there like, uh, deer in the headlights. What do I say? Don't mess up. Don't use homophobic slurs, which I've used my whole life, twitching, twitching, like freaking out. So that's exactly what happened.
2: Wow.
0: But but you know, I, 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 and and I understood it in a sense because on the call he's like, "Listen, I'm trying to make a career, and I, I think we we're programmed so much in that culture to think, shut my mouth, keep my head down, and work. Don't speak out, don't do anything." Because my whole thing was, "Okay, great, you did this gesture. It, it's a lovely gesture." But how are you going to use your platform if you're an ally to the community? And he's like, uh... So I left it, and I left that call saying, whatever, you know, nice gesture, I'm over it. And that might be ruthless, but... It's me. So um, we didn't talk for like a year. Yep. Like, what? There was no animosity or anything. We yeah, just yeah. didn't talk until I saw him using his platform for all this, and then we started talking, and now we talk every day.
1: He kept some. He kept some tabs on me, and maybe just slowly <laughs> ticked away at thinking, okay, maybe this isn't just for show.
0: Curtis, what did you do after that call?
1: Did you get to work, try to do some homework, or what? I mean, I think I realized pretty quick. I jumped myself right in the deep end uh, without much flotation device or anything. I remember when I was a kid, went to Gorman Pool, in Newmarket, in Ontario, and my mom brought me the deep end, and she started talking to her friend behind her for a couple minutes, and I did what she told me to do. She told me to Bob, get up to the surface, take a big gulp of air back down to the bottom, and shoot back up to the top. And every time it was, Mom, <gasps> back down. So that's what I did. That's what I did. And uh, I just immersed myself in it. I-, I looked up stories about him, and I was kind of like, my gosh, reading about it. And then come to later find out that hearing his story you know, from start to finish in a public speaking engagement to a a girls hockey team out of Eastern Canada, like all the finer details. As far as that, I was just, I just started sharing stuff. I think I just started following LGBT accounts, immersing myself in what the main issues are and just constantly sharing things and showing what I'm reading. And then as the months kind of ticked by, I kind of started to realize, okay, so I'm an ally. People have like Brock said, put me on this pedestal of that, but what does that mean? And that means, you know, amplifying these voices. I'm not here to take the spotlight. I'm here to show what, what these people bring. And they're just normal people. And and that this is a very normal thing. Um, So for me, it was eventually clicking that I'm like the scapegoat ally. I'm like the white super masculine hockey player. That's like, just going to show how he's learning on the fly so that others can learn. And I've had so many just white folks reach out and straight folks reach out and be like, Hey, just keep doing this. Cause I'm like, just following along and learning with you. So I think that's probably been, that's probably the, the most thing I did during that time uh, between talking, not talking to Brock and then talking to him
3: again mm-hmm. uh, at the middle of kind of quarantine, you know, tell us a little bit more about like your upbringing and what got you into, you know, being a, an ally that you are now. And speaking about, you know, um, LGBTQ rights and equality.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was raised by a super open family my mom, no we're not religious we're just kind of like treat everyone with respect very just good-natured people but we had no idea about these issues we had no one in our family that was uh, gay i think I one cousin that's gay but he lives in scotland never met him kind of thing or i think he came over once when i was young but it just wasn't it wasn't humanized and that's what brock talks about it it has to be humanized and has to pull at your heartstrings for you to kind of understand and then i think most humans i think we like to think we're all mostly good people you start to empathize and start to realize wow what if i was in that shoes what if my brother was gay what if my sister was gay what if my mom came out later in life is gay how would i treat that so for me it was um an ex-girlfriend's friend who came out and she was unfinancially supported because of that you know she had never been with a with anyone in general and then she just loved a girl and that was supposedly bad and uh, I just was like what because she was just the sweetest human being like one of those people that's just like so nice it hurts and I was like how can this possibly happen so that was my first introduction to it where it's humanized and then I kind of like dabbled in it enough to know that okay the pride tape and this is you know pride nights and then put it on so really it was just a simple gesture of supporting her at the time you know I, I we everybody like Brock says it's performative guys put the tape on their blades we actually had the guy come in and say hey guys Guys, you can put the pride tape on your blade for warm up and then you can take it off the game. And I was like, ah, I'm trying to stay in the NHL at the time. I don't want to put it on my blade. I put it on the shaft of my stick. So I, I come back in after warm up and everybody's retaping their sticks. And I just looked at my stick and I was like, it's a split second decision of it's gonna take longer to take it off or longer to take it off than to keep it on. Might as well just keep it on and maybe somebody will notice. And then I just went back to playing. So that's that's what I always emphasize. It's such a small decision that can go such a long way. Like what a ripple effect one little two second decision had.
2: Brock, from your perspective, how important, you know, because you talked about it first, you, you didn't buy it, but now now that you're bought in, now that you, you know Curtis and you know his intentions, what does it mean to you to see somebody like him have a platform and use it? I think
0: it's really important. I think it matters so much. And, and Curtis and I have had these conversations where, you know, it's like being at these levels, and having the opportunity to share and discuss at, you know, in NHL locker rooms or with a fandom is so critical in shifting a culture that needs to shift and to making people feel like they have a space within it. So, knowing Curtis, um, I, I think having him there is so important, especially how passionate he is and how he approaches life. And Curtis doesn't do anything half-assed. And as you're all learning in San Jose, he goes through the wall every single time and he did that with this and I think it matters so much. Uh,
1: if I could just jump in real quick there. I Thank you so much, Brock. Yeah. I think it's very important and why really I wanted Brock on is because, like I said, the humanizing and, the, and and what he's taught me. So, Brock, if you don't mind, I know you're comfortable talking about this, but I would love for you to just lay it on everybody, your, your your experience growing up and through the OHL and what you went through. I think that is so damn important and I really hope everybody listening at home turns up the volume and pays attention.
0: Well, thanks. And, and I think it is. And I think how we're going to shift... The culture within hockey with all minority people is by humanizing the issues, and then seeing that there are really good people here, they just haven't been exposed to enough. And then once it's humanized for them, then they will hopefully we will have education to provide them. And then we can start getting them to rally behind these issues and shift culture. And that's the ultimate goal. And that's how we will get it inclusive, more inclusive for women on, in men's hockey, more inclusive for the BIPOC communities, more inclusive for the LGBTQ+, for disabled people, you know, I uh, I was on a linear track where I was supposed to make the NHL. I was a fairly high OHL pick. I was on an NHL draft list, and I hated myself. I... Uh, just from language, language I heard in locker rooms, uh, attitudes, this hyper masculinity that you had to adhere to. So I conformed to it fully. I was, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was a womanizer. I adhere to all the stereotypes that are a hockey player, this macho cocky bro that walks in a room and thinks he's a gift to the world, a men's hockey player, I should say. And uh, I should, uh, I gotta be specific. That's important. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And what people didn't know, my friends, like especially major junior and whatnot, thought I had this incredible life. What they didn't know is I'd go home and I'd cry. I hated myself. And on more than one occasion, I tried to take my life. Just because of the behaviors and the language and everything that was consistently there. It wasn't like I was bullied. I was a hockey player, but it just beat me down on a daily basis. And I started drinking heavily. By the age of 18, I was drinking every day. 18 to 23, I drank every day, I believe. And my career derailed. I went from being on the NHL draft list, having a contract with a team in the NHL to, uh, by my early 20s, I'm playing in the miners of Europe. I had a season-ending injury every year. I was incredibly depressed. I was suicidal. I was sick all the time. And I finally sat myself down one day. I was in Europe and I just said, listen, two things are about to happen one if you don't figure this out your career is going to be over so at that point i said okay i gotta figure this out and then i had an even greater revelation that if i really didn't figure this out i'd probably end up dead so i came back after that season and i went on a date with a guy who i ended up dating for three years and initially i was like this is phenomenal now i know i'm gay i've accepted myself everything's great my career will get back on track i'm going to make the nhl except it got worse because now I was in the closet. Not only, now I went from hiding my sexuality and suppressing it and dating women to now I'm accepting I'm gay except nobody knows. And so now I have to hide myself in another person who had an alias for me with his friends. So they can find me on social media and expose me as a hockey player. Never in three years met a soul in my life. And at that point, I, you know, I was really struggling and, and I took a step back from professional hockey, moved to Montreal, went to school and played on the hockey team at the University of Concordia. Then I saw this kid come out, Brennan Burke. And Brendan's the son of Brian Burke, who used to run your rival, The Ducks. And, um, you know, now he's with Pittsburgh. And his son came out as gay, and we instantly became friends. I think, you know, having that commonality was someone I could open up to. And we talked every day, and I think for him it was great, too, because somebody understood the duality he had of being in this hyper-masculine world, but being gay. And um, I remember one day Brendan sent me a text and said, I can't wait for the day that you're up to your family like I am to mine. And I went, oh, shit. Wow. What do I say? What do I do? I ignored him. I ignored the text just because um, my family is so involved in hockey. I feared that they would stand up to the language they started to hear and accidentally out me and jeopardize any chance I had of a career. And uh, two days later, Brendan passed away in a car accident. Those were the last words he ever said to me. And I knew at that point I was so alone. I had just broken up with the person I was dating uh, for three years. My only friend in the world, who knows I'm gay, passed away. And I never felt so alone in my life. So I honored his wishes. And I sat my brother down, who's a professional hockey player at the time. And I said, Corey, I'm gay. He said, yeah, so you're Brock, I love you. And I told my family and I told everyone outside of hockey. And even after retiring, I didn't tell anyone in hockey. I started working with athletes and whatnot. But a few things kind of gave me the kick in the butt I needed. Um, I was working up in Northern Ontario in Sudbury with athletes. And I found out that a hockey mom called me and to set me up on a date. And I said, what's her name? And she said, "Steve." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "What?" And she said, "Brock, you're gay." And I said, "How? How do you know this?" And her son had told her. And I came to find out that the hundred or so clerks I was working with knew I was gay. And I fear telling them because I was in northern Ontario, where there isn't a lot of exposure to diversity at all. Like there was a few Indigenous kids in my high school, and one black kid in my entire high school of over a thousand people like there, there, there was no openly gay kids there was no diversity in the north so I feared that the parents knowing they wouldn't let their kids work with me so I hit it so that happened I came to find out they all knew which was super cool and, and I started to observe their behaviors and noticed that they were essentially calling each other out and, and setting a tone that they didn't adhere or weren't open to any homophobic language which was really nice to see um, and I should have came out but a few things uh, I was scared. I was scared of the hockey world but a few things gave me the kick in the butt I needed. The local hockey association that I was helping out working with um, alienated me and blocking me from working with their teams when they found out I was gay through you know back channels Mm -hmm. and this was 2016 so it wasn't that long ago. Wow. And and I've seen that. I've seen that at every level of the sport where people who I was engaged with and worked with and different things it sort of shifted once they knew, um, which is sad, but it's reality still today. And then um, the incident at Pulse Nightclub happened, mm. where 49 people were murdered that summer. And that was the point I knew I had to stand up um, and do something. Because that easily, I mean, this is North America. This isn't somewhere across the world where people have come to me since, or it's illegal to be gay. And I had somebody come to me from a country where it's illegal to be gay, and his best friend started the first LGBT newsletter there and was found by the government and decapitated. So these things happen across world but this wasn't there this is north america and we're supposed to be the mm-hmm. leaders in inclusion and diversity and progression and, and and in a lot of ways we're not when we champion that we are so I felt like this was my time to stand up and do something, so I wrote an article for Yahoo Sports and I came out publicly. And now I've been traveling the world as an activist and trying to shift hockey culture.
2: On top of that, so I'm trying to think. I'm trying to put myself in the perspective of possibly some of our listeners, some of our fans, who might think that's fine. You know, I have I have nothing against you being gay. I have nothing against you being an ally. But stop shoving it in my face and just stick to hockey. <laughs> Why is it important to be loud? Why is it important to be an activist? activist to you guys.
1: I mean, as the ally, I just I just I hear that and I just I'm a very combative person, obviously, with on the ice and stuff, so I have to work on my grace and stuff. But like why you're watching hockey because of the human element. You're watching sports because of the human element. And I say this I had a rant when uh when the players decided to not play those games in the summer at the bubble. I went on a rant about about time and and you know if you want to go watch go watch robot wars or whatever. You know, go watch simulated uh, NHL video games if you want no emotions in the game. it's It sounds so r- silly, but that's how silly what they're saying is. Sports is not an escape. Sports is real life competing, real people competing against real people. And each person is different. They have their own emotions, their own lived experience, their own upbringing, their own conditioning. So... It's just to make a statement like that is just so ignorant, it blows my mind. And I'll let you bro- take it from there, Brock.
0: So in terms of as an athlete being an ally, in my opinion, when people say stick to sports, that would be, shouldn't they not focus on sports or politics then because they should just solely be focused on their jobs? Exactly. By that same logic, they should only focus, a surgeon should only focus on surgery. A, doc- uh, a lawyer should be thinking about legal cases day and night. And, and so it's illogical. We are human beings and we should hope to create well-rounded human beings. I think it's really important to have allies. I think for all things, I think too many people are silent on issues out of fear. Out of fear that I, I think sometimes fear is saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's 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 fear of you know the backlash they may receive and it's also conditioning from the culture to shut up and play. I think again, I'm gonna go back to the Black Lives Matter movement this summer. I think we learned that silence is deafening. If you're complacent, you're complicit in in all these different things. To me, being loud, I mean I travel the world as a speaker, I go on do major media and different things and I was still, you know, alienated or blackballed in the sport at different levels. And, yeah. and there's things that have happened since at higher levels. And I look at that and go, you know, so there's that. Plus, I also have the kids and the adults mm-hmm. who are struggling the way I did, coming mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I have kids from all over the world coming to me struggling. I, I've gone, I've I've keynoted major hockey events. And then I have teenage boys coming to me in my DMs after saying like, I'm really having a hard time. And then I find out that they're cutting themselves daily. And then I find out they went from being elite hockey players to barely cracking the lineup. And their schooling went from being great at to all of a sudden, they can't formulate a sentence on in an essay. And, and they're in like a state of paralysis. And it's all from the attitudes and behaviors that are pushed on them constantly. And then I have to travel around to their communities and their cities and find them help and be a resource for them and for their parents. And, and I'm, just, I'm tired of this having to happen when we're in a state of society where it shouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. That's barbaric. That's caveman stuff. Like mm-hmm. We should be so further along in terms of this, and, and right. we're not.
2: We're going to hit pause on this interview with Curtis Gabriel and Brock McGillis, but we have a lot more to get into with both of them. Mo, before we finish, we've had a lot of requests uh, as to where people can find your art or how to get your work that has been used with the Sharks.
3: Uh, they can find my art. MF the brand. You know, I have a website. I have Instagram. Just, you know, we make some great stuff. And as I'm speaking right now, if you go to SJTeamShop.com, there's a great hoodie and T-shirt. We are out of time for this edition of Teal for Change, but we'll be back soon with more of this interview that you've been hearing.
2: And we will discuss the horrific violence and hate crimes being committed against the AAPI community. You've been listening to Teal for Change.
1: Thank you for listening to Teal for Change on the Sharks Audio Network. All music by Yogi Yen.